0: below the line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. As regular listeners know, season four of the podcast is focused on awards season in Hollywood, and this episode is the first in our series about the Oscars. Today, we're going to discuss the nominees in the category of production design. As a warning, these conversations tend to wander, and there could be spoilers. Let me introduce my guests, all of whom are based in New York City. Sam Lisenko, you've been a production designer for 14 years. Your credits include Uncut Gems, currently in theaters. And in 2018, you were the production designer on both Vox Lux and 8th Grade, among other projects. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Glad you're here. Next up, Carrie Weeks. You've been working in the art department for 30 years, and you've been a full-time lead man for the last six. Looking at IMDb, it jumps out at me that you've worked on a bunch of the Netflix Marvel stuff, including Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, Luke Cage, and Daredevil. Welcome to the show. Thank you, glad to be here. And then finally in our fourth chair, George DeTita Jr. You've been working in the industry since 1977. We'll let our listeners do the math. You've been twice nominated for Oscars as a set decorator, Ragtime in 82 and Radio Days in 88. And a couple of my favorites from your credits list include Birdman from 2014 and Succession, the TV series currently running on HBO. George, welcome. Thanks for having me. Before we start talking about the year's nominees specifically, Let's talk about how things are structured within the art department as a whole. As I mentioned, you've all got different job titles, production designer, set decorator, lead man. Talk to me about how all that comes together for what we see on the screen.
1: Well, I can start that off. I, I think that um, especially having, being the youngest on the podcast, or at least uh, in terms of years of experience, um, it, the trickiest part of Engaging any movie is actually putting together a crew. After that, if if you found reliable people who know their individual roles, uh, it, it makes the job exponentially easier. But in theory, I think the production designer functions as a communicator and politician between... The um, interests of the fiction and the critical engagement of the artisans who have to actually execute. So you you want to make sure that you're trying to foster an environment in which everyone in the art department can um, can engage with a fiction and bring their A game, but uh, but are also uh, alleviating their concerns and being a, enough of a listener to communicate that stuff to producers and director in order to um, to kick the football forward, if that makes sense.
0: And what about the various rules? So for example, if you're working as a production designer, are you the first one on the project and then you bring along a set decorator you've worked with or is that person hired separately? Just starting with that, how does that come together?
1: Sure. I, you you have to start to think a bit more as like the um, I think in a lot of ways the set decorator is is the chief executor of uh, visual concepts uh, in in the most creative way outside of the production designer. So I think you know those two jobs work in tandem in ways that and which is reflected in in Oscar nominations in ways that the art director production designer relationship aren't. Um, you you are really extending yourself in that other person in order to facilitate the look of a thing and so one would hope that uh you assuage enough concerns that you know i can spend time with the director talking creative and somebody like george is actually you know doing it doing the work
0: George, tell me a little about your history with the work. I know that when you were nominated, it was a group of you nominated in the set director's category. In other words, there were several names associated with the position. And I see less and less of that. Occasionally I see two names, but I'm curious how that role is split up if it's multiple folks or if those are uh, more unique situations.
2: Well, I think you first have to start with the fact that, um, you know, the Academy probably has gotten involved with that more. Um, you know, in recent memory, then back when you saw that I shared that credit with multiple decorators. I mean, in the case of Ragtime, um, you know, it was a a show that was done both here and in England. So you know, they they did they did probably half the show in New York and half the show um, they did in in the studios in, uh in in London. Um, I think for that particular show. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, a shared credit with with uh, various decorators and whatever. On Radio Days, that was all done in New York. And um, there were, uh, I believe, three decorators that were credited. Um, it was a big show. And I believe at that time, there was probably a little more leeway with the Academy. And back then, I believe also that art directors shared the credit. Um, that has all changed. I think there was pushback from certain groups Um, throughout the 80s and they kind of reorganized their thoughts and and basically eliminated the art director out of the uh, the category for production design Um, and it's I think it it, although it still happens I think it's probably um, you know frowned upon to give more than one uh, decorator a credit uh, because I believe that uh you know that that comes from the academy, you know with that in mind, I think that politics play into the into the uh situation as far as those nominations are concerned to
0: that point, I think I read that there weren't even set decorators recognized until the late forties I think I think the early years it was only a single award given to the production designer I think they it's not in front of me, but they called it something different when things uh when things kicked off
2: i I think it was probably art direction, and you know i I don't quite know what the early early history was. I do know that the set decorator in those early films did share the front uh, a front screen credit so and and there were some pretty prominent names back then who you know over the years um are decorators who are constantly kind of referred to when they talk about the golden age. Um, but, you know, I guess that evolved over the years and, uh, you know, it is where it is now.
0: Well, speaking of where it is now, let's talk about some of the other roles in the art department. Gary, Leadman, give us an idea of what that job entails.
3: I'm basically, a, uh, I'm the installer. Like um, Sam, as a production designer, comes up with the, with the big picture of it. George, as the decorator, will detail it. You know, the fine brush strokes, the the small details, the little personal touches, all that. And then uh, me and my crew are the ones that put it in. You know, if it's a location, we go in ahead of time, we clear everything out, we bring in our stuff, we work uh, closely with George and um, uh, whoever his assistants are to make sure everything looks just right. Sam, the production designer, would come in and uh, give give it the final okay, and then we shoot. Um, If it's a stage, I'm there in the very beginning to, you know, put the floor down, put the ceiling up, put the pictures up, all that. I just wanted to um, address one thing. Uh, Interesting, the the one question that civilians constantly ask me for some reason when I tell them what I do, and and the question is, how do you get that job? Who hires you? And I don't know if they're trying to hone in on my work or what, but... (laughs) It always seems to be the first question on their mind is, well, how do you get that job? How did you, uh, who hires you? And so typically that is um, the decorator. The decorator is my immediate supervisor with the production designer being sort of the overall departmental head. So for those people who are very hierarchical
0: uh, in very in need of a hierarchy, that's, hmm. that's generally how that works. And then, so what sort of size team are we generally talking about? On a typical film, obviously, <clears throat> films tailor their crews based on the actual requirements of the job. But are we talking about three people, 10 people? What sort of what sort of size crew are you working with?
3: Well, it really depends on the project. I mean, there are small jobs, some of these um, uh, small little HBO TV shows. Like, um, uh, what was the one about the comedian who was sleeping on the couch? Uh, anyway, it was a could...
0: surfing or something like that, wasn't it? It was about yeah. crashing. That was crashing. it.
3: Crashing, that was it, Yes. That would be a pretty small crew there you know they'd probably be a decorator a lead man and maybe three or four set dressers on the marvel stuff i was usually running a crew between 20 and 30 i'd imagine on something like the irishman you could have 50 guys on in a in a given day 50 just set dressers and that's not even counting scenics uh carpenters construction grips uh etc so
0: and a lot of these folks are working ahead of the actual shooting crew, preparing sets in advance. I know as a assistant director, we might have a couple of representatives, an on-set dresser, Greensman, you know, comes from the art department and is selected by you guys to handle those jobs for the shooting. But everyone else is trying to get ahead because there's so much pre-work that goes into what you guys are setting up. Yeah, yes.
2: On the Irishman, there actually were two set dressing crews because my brother Jerry was the lead man on that show. And I know there was a, a second uh, uh, set dressing crew that kind of did other things. So there was, there was two, there was two dressing crews being run for a period of time on that show.
0: And you think just because of schedule George, just because they had so much to get done that they actually divided into two And they
2: they might have had a second unit also going. So, um, you know, that's possible. And and probably because it was period, et cetera, um, they probably decided that maybe it made more sense to, to do it that way.
0: Well, that's a good segue into our nominees. The first up is The Irishman. Nominated production design, Bob Shaw. And set decoration, Regina Graves. I know that you've all seen it. What do you think their challenges were? What catches your eye from a production design perspective?
2: I think that uh, I think Bob and Regina did a a pretty brilliant job on that show. Um, They covered a lot of ground Um, period wise. I think they covered a number of years and uh, I think overall it's, it's a, it's a pretty great looking film. I think that uh, they delivered the goods. (laughs) I thought it was pretty spectacular on a design uh, point. And uh, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't say any, you know, anything that I negative about, you know, what they did. I think everything was pretty, uh, pretty incredible in terms of the look and what they achieved. There, there was not a moment during that movie where I
1: stopped to think about the look of the film, which I think, in regards to a post-war period piece, is incredibly successful, um, especially one that ranges those. Uh, those year gaps, uh, it's a, a pretty sweeping vision with a lot of wide shots and nothing, nothing stuck out as, as being inappropriate. Um, so that's, that's a success as far as I'm concerned.
3: I, I totally agree with that. And watching the movie, um, I didn't have any of those moments where, oh, there's the lamp from 1956, prominently displayed, you know, camera left of the main actor or whatever. Um, I've seen that happen often enough in period films where it it seems like they're trying to hit you over the head with the periodness of the um, design and the set decoration. And um, in this, it was, it was such a crucial part. I I really felt enmeshed in the story and in the time period and in that universe, I felt completely enveloped in it without being completely aware of it or conscious of it.
0: And and that's a, a difficult and, beautiful thing to pull off. And I think it highlights one of the challenges of a period movie and, and you've all alluded to it. If the job is done successfully, it's not noticeable that something isn't distracting from the set. I mean, obviously there are movies, you know, it comes to mind, like, uh, the wedding singer, which was supposed to be the 1980s, a bunch of years ago, but putting a Rubik's cube in everybody's hand is sort of a, like, then they're sort of leaning into it in a way that generally in a dramatic film set in a, uh, different time period you don't want to do that you don't want it to be about the time period if the job is done successfully and that's that also i think makes it difficult for the film to sort of get noticed when it is intentionally subtle but uh maybe you guys have other thoughts about that
1: i I agree completely i think you know um it's incredibly hard for uh contemporary non-period films to get noticed for um design uh and and even in our conversation about the irishman we're all defaulting to the post-war stuff but the 1990s stuff looked fantastic also uh and was as considered and and really some of the more beautiful parts of the film i thought but you don't stop and think about it and because of its uh because of its ability to fold in uh you know like a chameleon i think uh i think Not just the viewing public, but also critics and the academy uh, don't stop to pay attention to it.
0: Well, I think on the opposite end of that spectrum, let's talk about our next nominee, Jojo Rabbit, set during World War II. Production design: Ra Vincent, and set decoration: Nora Subkova. Hopefully, pronouncing that correctly. Some interesting production design challenges. Uh, Who's seen this film? Yeah, I saw it. So, Sam, uh, lead us off on what you thought about Jojo Rabbit.
1: Sure. I think uh, uh, Taika. MortD took a pretty ham sandwichy movie and and did something um, that I actually wound up liking a lot more than I thought I was going to walking into it with it um, it you know I think to a certain extent in the last probably 15 20 years we've been inundated with this um, this film school generation of which I, I'm, I'm a member that have um, that have come out of uh, a collegiate background as opposed to an architectural background and have this uh, incredible depth of knowledge of, of film history, specifically international film history. Um, and so there's this language of, you know, post-war French film and post-war Italian film that, that uh, becomes very innate for uh, certain filmmakers. Um, I think starting with Wes Anderson around 2000, it's very easy to write that off as twee or cutesy uh But if it can find an audience, which in this case it did and and it 's not a big film at all uh, i think it's it's a very successful one uh, i To me, it was a little uh cartoony, but it was clearly an intentional decision, and you got to respect a movie for for sticking to it.
0: Are there elements in the production design that lean into this these cartoony aspects as you describe as well, or do you think the film overall just sort of production design is just sort of carried along in this wave?
1: Uh, my instinct, watching it, was more that it was kind of lit in a playful way, and less about production design. And I think the two are so intr- intrinsically linked that it's hard to sometimes judge production design uh, separate from lighting. I think sometimes, if you watch a movie and you don't like the way it looked, it's 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 more of a lighting problem than than you than you think because you're looking at the tangible background and not thinking about how it was um, how it was adjusted for the lens. Uh, so there was nothing inherently, um, kind of gauche or over the top about the production design in the film. There was some playful use of colors and and wood trim details and, you know, it was very storybook looking. Um, but I think it was actually more this kind of, um, this cartoon, uh, brightness to it that, that, that leaned it in that direction a bit.
0: So let's talk about our third nominee, 1917, production design, Dennis Gassner and set decoration, Lee Sandales. Folks, has anybody seen 1917? Uh, I haven't.
1: haven't and, and the reason I haven't seen it yet is because I, I don't want to watch it on a screen or at home. Uh, so I do intend on trying to catch it while it's in theaters, but it's, it's one continuous shot or it's, it's cheated as if it's one continuous shot. Correct. There's like five or six different breaks in it. I've heard
0: Yes. So I have, uh, I have seen the film. I saw it in the theater. And to your point, Sam, I strongly recommend folks do see it in the theater. Um, it's the illusion of one continuous shot with some breaks. Um, I have been reading, and maybe you guys have read as well, about some of the challenges they faced. In other words, blocking out some of these scenes and then building the sets around what was possible with continuous camera movement. I, have you guys heard that as well? Do you know anything about that?
1: Uh, no more than the one sentence you just said about
0: it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just could not s-
3: squeeze that one into my schedule this week.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, if, you, if you've got time, yeah, do try to find it while it's in the theaters. Um, it's interesting though. And uh, I, when I watched it, I appreciated it as an assistant director. And we, we talked quite a bit about it on the DGA episodes about the challenges of setting up those kind of shots. I imagine that the same sort of, uh, um, issues about having everything set with a moving camera applies to production design as well. But maybe you guys have a different sense of that, given that much of your work is done before the cameras are there. Do you think that the challenges of that continuous shot equally add credit to the production design, or is that not necessarily a factor in the production design itself?
1: If I can kind of meander off of that a little bit um, and just say that to what Kerry was saying earlier about his. Um his job role uh, I think was modest at best. Uh, he along with, to a certain extent um, myself and, and somebody like George it, are in a position in which we're kind of directing tomorrow, um, both logistically and, and creatively. Um, and so there are tools we can use or at least I feel like I've used, um, uh, especially as of late, I just finished a period picture and um, you know, you show up and you tailor a location being cognizant of um the production schedule for the shooting crew which which is a, uh, quite a burden in order to facilitate any possible outcome that the shooting company could need so when we're in these spaces we're thinking about blocking um for tomorrow's crew and so in a in a lot of ways we're directing tomorrow's uh, action so there there are definitely times in which we'll place furniture or um highlight uh wall hangings or something because we know that if we give them that shot even subconsciously when they show up and figure out the blocking, they're going to play it towards that side of the room or something. So I think it's probably a push pull in a situation like that where the blocking is so specific, but you know, there is a, there is a kind of a silent guiding hand the day before uh, in terms of what, what our assumptions are. Uh, so I think that, you know, given, given those kinds of logistics, it's very feasible that, you know, despite our lack of want, like Carrie or George could direct because you have to be considerate of those things to do the job well.
3: It's um, kind of a truism in film uh, from the art department, where if they say we're never going to look over here, <laughs> they're going to look over there. And and anyone who's ever done this more than once knows that. And when we dress a set or design a set, we design it pretty much three hundred and sixty. We have to assume they're going to look everywhere, even when they say to you. You know, the director says to your face on the tech scout, I'm never going to look over there. It'll happen. Uh, The only thing I can think of is in in a movie like 1917, where these moves have to be really storyboarded and and rehearsed and thought out. It it doesn't allow much spontaneity, I wouldn't imagine, for the director and the creatives on the set. So in that case where they say, we're not going to look over here they're kind of bound to it because they've already committed to this is the camera action. This is the way we're going. And so um, that's the thought that occurs to me in that essence. In that
1: um, <laughs> On the, um, on the, on the movie I just finished in Cleveland, I had a private conversation on a daily basis with the transpo captain about <laughs> moving moving their trucks into shot so that uh, the movie took place in 68 so that we could not look in the direction <laughs> where they had, they had placed the base camp. <laughs> so
0: a um, little collaborative effort there to sort of limit where the is going to be and that yeah. will help out.
2: You know, um, in terms of that idea of the, the continuous shot now, I did Birdman, which obviously we were up against all of those situations. And, you know, it obviously does... Um, have a big effect on the design situation because you know you have to know you know where they're going to end that shot to cut it in in such a way so the thing is you're usually covering a lot more ground than normal and worrying about you know where that camera is going to wander off to so I, I would say that you know in the case of a show like that i you know the, the design elements are you know become a big factor because you have to know you know at what point they're gonna kind of you know try and melt that into something else to make it look like that that seamless shot and uh you know we did that many a time on that show because it was mostly done you know in the studio on stage but you know obviously we were outside at times and times square et cetera. so um you know we did have those 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 uh situations
1: you know, Skid also think about it this way. It's like we're composing images um usually with the assumption that you have a master and then you go in for coverage. So what looks good in, in the wide um probably looks like shit from from the opposite direction. And the number of times that, you know, the, the the dressers have to move a bed so that the grips can put up a light or something um when you when you pop in negatively impact what a three sixty would would look like even down to like where a lamp cable is lying, um, and without the ability to tweak individual images, I think it's actually much harder to be prepared for that kind of thing.
0: Let's move on to our next nominee. Also, a period piece. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Production design: Barbara Ling. Set decoration: Nancy Hay. Do you guys know Nancy? Am I saying Nancy's name correctly?
2: You're anyway, saying it right. Yes. Thanks, George.
1: Okay. <laughs>
0: Who's seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I've seen them. Yep. Okay, Sam, Carrie, you guys lead us off on that. What did you guys think?
1: Well, I actually, um, I happened to be in LA when they were shooting and they had, for bear, what winds up being very brief moments of screen time, they had uh, dressed probably a, a 6 and a half block run of sunset boulevard uh for the period and i was just driving down it and i had, I had no idea <laughs> what it was for it was one of the most incredible things i'd ever seen um this the scope of that movie is just staggering i you know it's it's definitely easier easier architecturally to shoot um the 60s in la comparatively to say new york but um but that city's had major changes, you know, things like bike lanes and, you know, um, anti-terror planters and the removal of parking meters and the change over to LED street lights. You know, um, for for the for the exterior stuff, they they did an incredible job. It was it was really it was really shocking. Um, and I didn't like the film the first time I saw it, but then I, I went to go see it again. I, I saw it at the at the Light in Los Angeles, and I, I was I was blown away the second time I saw it. Too much music, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're doing scores on another podcast. Yeah, well, too uh...
1: much
0: <laughs> Gary, you said you'd seen it as well. What were your thoughts?
3: I did. Um, from a production design standpoint, it didn't really blow me away. Uh, I, I thought they did a, an excellent job. I'm not sure doing your job to uh, warrant uh, an Academy Award. Maybe I'm being a little harsh here, but... Um, uh, it, the the scale and the scope of it, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a lot and it's impressive. But I didn't see anything that um, made me think, "Wow, that was really above and beyond."
1: Yeah, I think I I, I have to agree with Carrie. Like the scope is, is shocking, but it's not a very pretty movie in, in any sense, and um, it certainly isn't subtle in its look at all.
3: The way uh, The Irishman immersed me in that world um i don't know i didn't feel completely immersed in in hollywood in the 1970s i felt uh, somewhat distanced from it and it's hard to say exactly what that is i mean that could be just tarantino's directing style which is uh, uh not quite as intimate as scorsese but uh you know that's my two cents from way down here
0: Well, another question occurs to me in what you guys have just said, in that when you guys see a film for the first time, and this is for all three of you, are you able to enjoy it as a movie or do you automatically find yourself critiquing or noticing or basically being distracted from the film itself by whatever's happened with the production design?
3: It it really depends on the movie and and how good of a story they're telling. And if I find I'm looking at... uh, wow, that must have been six trucks and 40 dressers that day to dress that scene, <laughs> then uh, my mind is wandering from the story and, and what's happening on the screen, which is fine. And that happens even in the best of films. But uh, so it it toggles back and forth between, wow, that was a, a huge dress day <laughs> to being completely immersed
2: in, in the story. I would say that I'm always looking at the design. You know, uh, it just... It's what I'm always doing, in addition to you know paying attention, but I think that ultimately I think that's what we always do. I think we look at what, uh what we know and and uh, and, and critique it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I, I find myself watching crap, escapist crap, in order to not have to think about process. So I I'll watch Die Hard three forty million times because it it's much easier for for me to. Fall into that fantasy than it would be for me to watch Parasite, even though I know that I, I would love uh, Parasite.
0: Well, let's talk about Parasite. That's the final nominee on our production design list. Production design credited to Lee Ha Jun and set decoration to Cho Wan Wu. So, Carrie, what were your thoughts on Parasite since you've seen it? Uh,
3: I, I loved it. And it was, um, it was interesting there because I did have one of those moments where I'm very conscious of the production design and at the same time, incredibly appreciative of it. Um, There was one scene in particular where uh, it's raining and the streets are flooding and um, the camera is pulling up for a direct overhead shot and you see the the telephone lines and the power lines start to cross and you see the water and the people walking through and then a dog swims by. And it was just a, a beautiful, beautiful shot. Um, but the whole design of, of the, um, the poor people being down the stairs, down, 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 they always had to go down to get to their place. And then the rich people were not only, um, did you climb stairs to get to them, but then once you got up there was this whole green oasis that was sort of floated above everything. And, um, it, I, I felt in, in this movie that the production design was a huge part of the story that not, it didn't just contribute to the story. It was uh, part of the story. It was part of the plot. And um, so I really appreciated it for that. And I thought it was self-standing. It kind of reminded me of Birdman in, in the sense of uh, in that movie where uh, in the hallways always seemed to get tighter and tighter uh, as I, I don't know if that actually happened, but that was the impression I got. Uh, was that the case? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was um, uh, another example of how the production design is part of the story.
0: It struck me in Parasite that we also have these parallels between the house on the hill, if you will, where the rich folks live and their window of their yard and the window that the poor folks have. Just the sort of parallel between the way those things are shot. Let me ask you guys in general, what kind of relationship is there between the director and the production designer in figuring out those elements? And I can see why it might be different film to film, um, but in your experience, does the production designer have the opportunity to bring up those sort of things? Or do directors often come with that, either scripted or otherwise determined in advance that that's the story they're going to?
1: I think uh, if, I, if I'm if i doing a really great job, then the director is going to think that my great idea was their great idea anyway, you know, <laughs> so you can guide the hand and there is an incredible amount of input, especially in the prep process because uh, I, I'm the first line of defense uh, when it comes to location hunting and that can dictate a lot uh, in terms of uh, what other worlds wind up being. For example, on, on Uncut Gems, we, we didn't know what, his house would look like until we had landed his apartment location. And we use the aesthetic of the apartment to drive the location hunt for the house. And there's, um, there's as much work in those two locations. So I think, uh, you know, these, these broad sweeping ideas about vision can be honed uh, at that point in the process. But, you know, like, I think a good director doesn't know what he wants, but he knows what he doesn't want. And that's a much more valuable skill because then there's the freedom for us all to, to, put it together
3: Um, my brother is a production designer and I've often seen him even suggest shots particular shots to a director uh, based off of the set he has built or whatever you know saying so if so-and-so come in through here the camera can move through this and you get this nice little foreground element and then they can be framed over here and um, you know he has a like Sam said he has a a way of suggesting this I think that where it it comes off as uh, you know the director thinks wow that's a great idea I just came up with.
0: Speaking of Parasite it's another movie where I've heard some of the stories about the production design, and where the, what's making the rounds now on Parasite is that at the house that the Rich family lives in is not a found location, but is built from scratch. Clearly, there'd be challenges in doing that, similar to what we said about 1917. But I want to take the conversation towards Oscars in general, and to what degree would you guys guess that stories like that making in the press might actually influence voters when it comes down to choosing a a final winner at the Academy.
3: Well, I'm not a voting member, so I really have no
0: idea about any of this. George, uh, you are an Academy member though. So what are your thoughts on the voting process?
2: Well, uh, listen, um, first of all, you know, I mean, if you're you're familiar at all with the way that these films are marketed, um, you know, it it, it has changed over the years um, with, you know, different campaigns aimed at... uh, you know, a variety of films. Each studio probably decides well in advance of who is going to, you know, be the show, the actor, the this, the that, that they're going to push. And, you know, and they put a very big campaign behind certain ones. I mean, obviously the ones this year that had, you know, a large campaign for were, were the Irishman uh, was, uh, was probably, you know, some of the, uh, the pictures that ended up getting the most uh, nominations. There's a lot of money that they sink in, Um, you know, all those trade papers, you know, if you could see my mailbox from, you know, probably uh, November the 1st uh, until presently, uh, it is filled with a daily variety, uh, Hollywood Reporter, uh, The Envelope, um, the L.A., uh, you know, something from L.A. that comes from one of the newspapers. But anyway, it comes on a daily basis, and um, the push – you know, to get your film noticed is, uh, is big business. And obviously, you know, it, it must in the end, uh, you know, translate to, uh, you know, dollars, uh, I think, and also, uh, prestige, especially when you're talking about like a company like Netflix that is, that has moved their marketing campaign from, you know, first see it, you know, on the big screen and then see it in your house or whatever. Um, so I, I think there's a, you know there's it's big business um and they choose in advance and i think that listen ultimately i think that those things have to have some kind of an effect on an academy member because those are the those are the pictures that are you know getting noticed those are the pictures that people are talking about um you know and then when the when the barrage starts of award season um ultimately you will see those pictures you know named and uh you know and that's kind of how it all happens there was a massive amount of um
1: buzz for Adam Sandler for my movie uh for a, a best actor nomination and uh and very little for Jonathan Price's uh role in Two Popes and i recall driving down sunset and seeing no billboards for my movie and two billboards for Jonathan Price in uh, and two popes and, and he got the nomination, so to what extent uh, the business plays as a factor in the level of access that the academy has to these movies i don 't know, but i'm sh- it 's got to be a contributing factor
0: I think it 's also an interesting point though, in the area of production design this year is that the Irishmen, despite the press that Netflix is making because obviously they would like to have more of these awards on their their mantle, uh, but I think they're at a bit of a disadvantage against these more explicitly period movies in this category as the early awards have shown Irishman's making a lot of nomination lists but not just in this category but across categories is not not taking home a lot of actual trophies
2: you know it, it uh, those first few award shows I think it's uh, it's kind of come up it hasn't come up empty-handed but I, I think it's come up with a lot less than it would you know it does it, is there that that you know that anti-netflix kind of attitude that that you know you read about and uh you know obviously a few prominent directors have kind of you know put on the front burner i don't know um you know i i, I just i just don't know but you know you have to remember in, in certain in some of those different situations you know like the golden globes that's the hollywood foreign press and um much like academy members you know they're kind of wined and dined and and uh Based on you know whatever uh, a particular studio wants to uh, push uh, and hopefully you know get noticed, they're going to appeal to that group of people and, uh, and and sell their product. So you know you don't know how much of uh, of that enters into it.
1: Yeah. Also keep in mind that Scorsese was nominated for best director for fucking Raging Bull, Last <laughs> Temptation, Goodfellas, Gangs of New York. He didn't win until two thousand seven. So for The Departed, which is, it, while it's a great movie, probably pales in comparison to half the stuff he was nominated for previously, so, you know.
0: Yeah, as I've said before, my hope with Scorsese was that the Oscar would let him start going in some different directions and try some new stuff, get back to his <laughs> before, but I'm not sure that I've seen it. But, uh, well, I know for all of you, when you're working, it's hard to keep up with what's actually out there. But open question, was there anything else you really appreciated this year in production design that didn't get nominated? I I have
3: something, um, and I I know why it wasn't nominated, but um, John Wick 3, which is not uh, a movie that anyone would even consider putting in the same sentence with Oscar, but the production design on that was actually excellent, and um, I I particularly got to hand it to uh, David Schlesinger, who was the decorator on that, who, who also was the decorator on Knives Out, which conceivably could have received a, a nod as well. So yeah, I think there's a lot of movies out there that deserve uh, attention or a nod, but don't get it simply because they're just not, uh, whatever, the, the, the Hollywood machine is not behind them.
1: I, I had some issues with Joker, but I thought the production design was fantastic um, overall. I thought it was a very good looking picture.
2: I thought maybe the two popes might only because um, you know it, it it just had a um, kind of a stellar look to it, and uh, they did build the Sistine Chapel. Um, <laughs> but um, but you,
0: they weren't allowed to film in the real one. You don't think that's
2: uh... no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so you know, you you, you kind of have to, you know, your hats your hats are off to them even giving making that attempt. Um, yeah.
1: Oh, also Ad Astra. Ad Astra was huge in scope. Um, and and critically undervalued for for what that movie was and what it looked like, I thought.
0: Yeah, I think some of the challenges of even that uh, moon surface stuff, that's a huge production design challenge that if it's running well, as you said, it it fades into the background of what's actually happening, but obviously a huge effort goes into it.
3: That was very impressive, the whole whole moon chase, although the movie lost me when they put a sound studio on Mars. I I could not (laughs) fathom why they would build a sound studio on Mars, but you know
1: that moon chase was, was spectacular it was a high speed low speed low gravity gunfire chase on, on the surface of the moon it was just it was awesome tremendous
0: Carrie, I think the lesson on your point is that uh, sometimes the production designer just has to do what the director says whether or yes. not it makes any sense from a production design <laughs> perspective alright folks well uh, listen uh, that's gonna be a wrap thanks for being here everybody thank you Skid Thanks Listeners, I welcome your feedback. You can email skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. I also appreciate your feedback via iTunes. Where your ratings and comments really do help us reach new listeners. And Facebook, where, for your visual entertainment, I post photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at podcast, below the line. Finally, you can follow the podcast at Twitter and Instagram. It's at pod, below the line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks again for listening. Our Oscar discussions will continue next episode, and I hope you'll join us there.